Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything has its own history. Simply everything you could possibly think of, like badges, ponds and green. Ooh, the history of green. I love the history of green. Also, I think the history of badges would be pretty spectacular to do. Uh, mm. Likewise, the history of ponds. Or we could do the history, Sam, this is especially for you, bones, loans and drones. Of course, drones is all about what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment. But also we could do moans, sloans and scones, which, of course, is the wrong way to pronounce scones. But it didn't it didn't work if I didn't pronounce it that way. However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of distance is in fact all about Renaissance letter writing, or even Renaissance letter writing, the Kentish knight politician and antiquary Sir Edward Daring and his third wife, Lady Unton Daring. How could you do a history of distance without them? It's also about Roman Vindolanda, Puritans in New England. It's about loneliness and isolation, the Atlantic communication, postal systems, medieval villages and the history of mountains. Sounds fascinating. Or that the history of bling is in fact all about opulence, luxury, ostentation, hip-hop and the Palace of Versailles. We rampage around the history of bling in our recent homeschooling episode on bling, which in fact is all about sumptuary laws in Tudor and Stuart England. It's all about what they wore. (laughs) <laughs> Very good. Uh, you're probably wondering who's telling you all of this fabulous, uh, important historical facts. My fellow presenter, let me just say he is the switch that turns history from a meaningless jumble of dates and events into a rich tapestry of emotion, experience and thought. He is the wicked switch of the East. See what I've done there? Uh, whose striped it. stocking legs and ruby slippers poke <laughs> out from the weight of history that has landed upon him in a tornado of research. And he is definitely the switch that will turn ignorance off and engagement and fascination with the past on. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, hello. Sam, does this mean that you are going to, in fact, do a history of witches? <laughs> yeah, I thought about it. 
<laughs> you know me too well. I know you too well. Well, you may be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot these episodes? Well, let's just say that if he were a Switch-related historian, he'd only be the President of the United States himself. A nice one, mind you. Keeper of the nuclear button, the Switch, guarantor of life on Earth as we know it. So almighty are his historical powers, so far-reaching and innovative are his questions into the archive. He certainly delivers on originality, rigour and significance. He is a man guaranteed to switch you on to an interest in the past. Yes, you've guessed it. It's your friend and mine. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Samuel Willis. Hello, everyone. Hello, Um, Sam. And welcome to the history of switches. Yes. Wow. Uh, I loved this from the moment I started thinking about it. And uh, it was definitely one of your ideas, James. It was definitely one of my ideas. I think it was an overhang from a previous episode that I hadn't actually been able to talk about the nuclear button. So one of the things Uh, I'm going to be talking about is pressing the nuclear switch. It's not really a switch, but nonetheless, I think it still works. Well, I think anything that turns on and off an electrical circuit counts, uh, which is when I started thinking in, in quite broad uh, broad scopes about it um, because it makes you sort of really consider what switches are used for, why they were used and where they were used. And it, it becomes um, unimaginably important and interesting. It's also, of course, with who is put in charge of them. I bet there is a, a history of um, repressive patriarchy, James, and switches. So who is allowed to turn things on and off? I bet there's a history of racism and switches. You see, however you think about it, I don't necessarily know the answers to those, but the point is, is that once you think about switches, you realise it's all about society. It's all about control because a switch, of course, gives you access to electricity. And electricity gives you access to light. It gives you access to power. It gives you access to heat warmth, which gives you things like health and education and, of course, medical equipment. So it can be uh, about controlling access to life itself. Once I realised that, I was suddenly like, oh, my God, what's going on at the minute with everyone suffering from COVID, so many people on life support, um, that there is an enormous uh, history of of ethics and understanding um, how and why and when you might or should be able to control people's lives via machines, uh, which has a, a fascinating history in its own right. It came, came across a really interesting case. This is all to do with the um, Hillsborough disaster. So um, for those of you who don't know, it was a terrible um, crush of supporters at, at um, uh, a football match in 1989. And um, one one I came across, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a medical, uh, um, a judicial case. So the Airedale NHS Trust against Bland, um, it was a House of Lords decision. And it's all to do with the 17-year-old uh, survivor of the Hillsborough disaster who had been comatose ever since then. And the debate was whether they could um, turn off his life support uh, system. His parents wanted that to happen. It was just one example of, of how this kind of concept of switches and controlling life uh, has, a, has a long and detailed history. But of course, if you think about what's happening now in intensive care, um, there'll be loads of people um, who 
uh, you know, specialist intensive care nurses and doctors, or I suppose always knew they were going to have a curious and troubling and difficult relationship with the machines that kept their patients alive. But perhaps only recently have they uh, had to come to to terms with actually confronting that decision again and again and again. So the weight of that decision, I think, will have definitely changed in their recent history. Um, so anyway, James, that was I suddenly had sort of quite deep and dark thoughts about the entire thing. Um, but then I love this idea about everyday reliance on technology and how easy it is to flick a switch. And so if you think about people who you know, suddenly electricity invented in the late 18th, 1800s, sorry, the late 18th century, so the 1700s, early 1800s, when it's specifically linked to uh, electrical circuits. So the switch is crucially important in a circuit, not just sort of electricity. And I think Franklin doing his crazy electrical experiments with kites and, and lightning. Um, and so that that link, I thought, was really interesting. And then to do... To, to work out who understands electricity. So in our house, James, my wife does all of the electrics. I don't go anywhere near it because I'll kill myself. Um, and I suddenly thought about how the world, the world changes and human knowledge changes according to developments in technology. Uh, and at what point were most people able to do most things? And then that changed to only a few people having the knowledge, wisdom and experience to be able to do things. So, for example, I I cannot um, uh, make an electrical switch and I also couldn't make a a, 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 um, a sort of computerised switch because I don't know how to code. Uh, but uh, against that, I do know how to fish. <laughs> so my hunter-gatherer, my hunter-gatherer is still there, uh, but I can't, I can't make a switch. Anyway, so there's, um, there will be a fascinating history there if anyone wants to go and look into it about the sort of the moment in human development when um, technology became so complex that it becomes a specialist, uh, a specialist skill. Um, but I suppose you could always argue that flint napping was always very specialist as well back in Stone Age times. So anyway, a bit of a ramble, but um, that, that was made me realise just how important and interesting history uh, switches are in history. No, it, it, it's incredibly interesting. And I had two big ideas, um, one of which was the nuclear button, the other, which uh, you'll have to wait and see. Uh, but then I started thinking right at the very end about the actual significance of it and the wider framing. And I, too, started thinking about the switch and electricity, its invention, its impact, the history of lighting, you know, the importance to social and cultural life, to the household, those kinds of things. On that front of of who should be allowed to look after the electrics within the household, it, too, is my role within the household. And I nearly killed myself not that long ago, like literally three weeks ago, because the lights had gone out and I went to check the fuse box, touched the fuse box and was literally knocked backwards and got a sort of huge um, surge of electricity up my arm. Uh, so we had to, I was rather worried by this, as you can imagine, we had to call an electrician out and it happened that one of the covers on the switch, the plastic covers on one of the switches had come off. And so the live wire was directly onto the metal casing of mm. the fuse box. Very, very dangerous. So it's almost a, uh, you know, 
almost a tragedy for histories of the unexpected. We can also think, <laughs> but to, to go back to what I was saying, though, we can also think about other kinds of switches. I was thinking also about railway switches and the changing direction of trains as you move oh, from nice. one in one direction to another. I was thinking about switches metaphorically and the idea of switching people onto something, the switch that clicked that would lead to a whole series of things, new ideas, ways of thinking, eureka moments of the past. Mm. Um, pressing somebody's switch is all about the history of anger. And then I came to your idea about this idea of who controls the switch, and that is a, the switch itself as a lever of power. You know, And you think about this when it is manifest in particular states, and they have the power to stop the flow of electricity or oil or power or water or the ability to switch off the telephone. It's a way of persecuting and controlling the poor. Or if as a state who controls large natural resources, that can be switched on and off by a switch. It's a way in which large superpowers can control other powers. It's also a matter of life and death. So you think about the electric shock that is used to kill people, to execute people, the flicking on of the switch there and the control about that. And again, that's about morality. It's about capital punishment. And then uh, then I think uh, the switching on and off of the life support machine, I think, is, is another one. And that's, you know, and that's really where I ended up. We uh, what's I think what's important to point out here is that we don't actually talk to each other about what we are going to do when we come up with these ideas, do we, Sam? Um, we're we're off independently researching. So actually, when you were going through just then, I thought, has Sam been reading my computer? <laughs> it's, it's we're often not on the same exactly the same wavelength. But today, I think we're really on the the same wavelength. But one of the things that was most intriguing to me was I came across an article in the journal Nature, sort of science popular science um, journal on death switches. Have you come across death switches at all? No, what's a death switch? Well, this is not a death switch to to electrocute somebody. This is basically when it came about during the computer era, era when, when computers were sort of invented and people had to have passwords um, for accounts. And what would happen if they died was that nobody could access their accounts. So what they did was programmers invented what are called death switches. And a death switch is basically, it's a computerised prompt on a sort of regular basis, maybe every week, to get you to enter a particular password. And if you don't um, reply, your passwords are automatically then transferred to another party. So if you're in an organisation, they go to your second in command. If it's within a family, they might go you know, to your heirs. And it was used in particular by people who wanted to reveal Swiss bank account numbers to their, their children, to their heirs, or people who wanted to um, confess secrets that were, you know, the, the kinds of things that they couldn't talk about during their lifetime. It then moves on from there and people get quite clever with it. And what they want to do is basically continue communicating with people once they are dead. And this came about because they realised that they could send programmed messages to be delivered on particular dates in the future. So you might, you know, if you died before your son or daughter married, you might send them a, you know, some kind of email 
uh, that they could read on their wedding. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have the foresight to know when that was. So that's quite a bad example. But it might be that on your wedding and your own wedding anniversary or your child's, you know, 50th birthday, you could send them a message. And the idea of this really intrigued me because effectively what you could foresee is a future where everyone is dead and simply computers are communicating between themselves. So dead people's accounts are basically communicating backwards and forwards. And in a a, a time of artificial intelligence, you could see how civilization could go on. Death could, in a way, be cheated by people continually communicating through social media, email, whatever, um, long after their death. So there we hmm. are, Sam. That was um, that was death switches. I love that. Not bad, is it? I, it's uh, yeah. Um, it's quite fun when we talk about the future. Mm. I, I often get asked about which moment in the past I'd really like to go back to. And of course, as any good historian would know, the actual answer to that is that you'd like to go somewhere in the future and then look back on where you are today and then you'd understand it better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you'd have some kind of sense of what was going on in our crazy, crazy world because you're a skilled historian. And then you would put a, you would put a bet on um, for, for something or other, an extraordinary <laughs> amount of money uh, and become yeah. fabulously wealthy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, I wanted to think a a little more about this idea of switches and morality. And uh, that allows me to talk about these um, a a series of fascinating psychological experiments made by a chap called Stanley Milgram, who was a social psychologist at Yale in the 1960s. Um, It's a series of experiments which became very well known um, and were heavily criticised and uh, raised all sorts of issues about exactly... Uh, how you should be conducting experiments, but also to do with uh, authority. It's all essentially to do with authority. um, And uh, it becomes um, linked with with a a kind of a more problematic issue of of the power that kind of resides in a switch. And when when, uh, technology takes control and you simply become a cog in a machine, whether that's a machine of authority where you simply do what you are told or you are simply the uh, enabler of the switch to go from off to on. It's a way of defending your, your, uh, your, your culpability by just saying, I've simply flicked a switch. I wasn't the person that actually caused damage. Now, it all works like this. So as an experiment, you've got these volunteers who are ordered by a supervisor to deliver a series of increasingly stronger electric shocks to someone else. Now, the key thing is that they believe that these other people are a volunteer and that they are actually shocking them with electricity, but in fact, they're just actors. Um, There was never any electrical shock apps actually delivered. Nevertheless, the volunteers ordered to deliver shocks of up to 450 volts, which would be fatal to humans. And if at any point the volunteer, so the person with the switch, wants to stop, they were given a series of prompts. The first one was, uh, please continue. Simple as that. Please go on. The second one says, uh, uh, you can't stop. The experiment requires that you continue. You must continue. Uh, The third one, it's absolutely essential that you must continue. And then the final one, you have no other choice you must go on. Um, the accomplice pretending to be shocked would often also ask to be let out. And nevertheless, the person doing the shocking would carry on uh, carry on doing it. 
the switches involved were very interesting indeed. Uh, they were labelled with different phrases. So one was slight shock, one was medium shock, one was danger, severe shock, and the most dangerous of them all was simply labelled X, X, X. So they didn't even know what that did. Now, the, the, the findings were fascinating. So around 65% of the volunteers were willing to administer the supposedly fatal 450 volt shock, and all of them administered at least 300 volts. Um, and it's quite interesting when this happened. So it's in the 60s, uh, Milgram, uh, he, he's Jewish, and he's been really influenced by the trial of Adolf Eichmann, uh, SS officer who was uh, tried for facilitating and managing the logistics involved in the Holocaust. Um, and he very famously at the time used, a, 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 I was just following orders as an excuse. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, why Milgram and others were so shocked to see the extent that which people would be willing simply to follow orders. Uh, and I decided to look back at this because it's it's quite important to to kind of think about this before it happened. So we all know what happened in the experiment, and the best way of doing that is um, is looking at the sort of publicity before it. Now I managed to find the public announcement is like an advert for people who were sort of unwillingly signing themselves up for this extraordinary experiment. Um, it simply says, "Public announcement: We will pay you four dollars for one hour of your time. Persons needed for a study of memory." We will pay 500 New Haven men to help us complete a scientific study of memory and learning. The study is being done at Yale University. Each person who participates will be paid $4 plus 50 cents car fare for approximately one hour's time. We need you for only one hour. There are no further obligations. You may choose the time you would like to come, evenings, weekday or weekends. No special training, education or experience is needed. We want factory workers, businessmen, construction workers, City employees, labourers, barbers, clerks, professional people, telephone workers, white-collar workers, salespeople and others. All persons must be between the ages of 20 and 50. High school and college students cannot be used. If you meet these qualifications, simply fill out this form. And that's it. <laughs> There's no mention of what's going to be involved or anything. So the next thing these people know is they're sitting in a room with four switches in front of them. They're told it's going to cause an electric shock and they can see the person that they are supposedly electrocuting. So uh, a, a big moment there, James, um, all linked with uh, the trial of Nazis in the 1960s, uh, linked with the Holocaust, linked with uh, authority and, and removing oneself from a decision-making chain, defending uh, what you do because of uh, orders and also um, I think uh, sort of removing yourself one step away from actually hurting someone just simply because you are flicking a switch. Are there many people that you could see yourself wanting to administer an electric shock to by <laughs> flicking a switch? <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment but I'm sure if I if I gave it a certain amount of thought there'd be people that I think deserve some kind of shock treatment. My uh, my my sister my lovely sister, my baby sister, has a has a new dog, um, who's rather um, rather yappy, and it has been fitted with a collar that, when it barks, Ooh, yeah, it, it electrocutes it. Yeah. It's very effective. I tried it on, and it, it would <laughs> it would certainly stop me <laughs> barking. Um, okay, brilliant, Sam. Well done. Uh, I'm going to go in a completely different direction, and I'm going to talk about turning on the switch 
for Christmas lights. Now this, actually, we should do this in one of our Christmas episodes. We should refer people back to it. And we've talked about Christmas lights in one of our special Christmas podcast mm, episodes. Yeah. We've done that sort of thing. So we all know about the way in which you know the Christmas tree gets invented in, in Germany and the from the 16th century, it comes into upper-class homes in 18th century Germany. Then the narrative is that it comes across with with um, Prince Albert, who Victorian um, Britain. Um, in Queen Victoria's diary, she talks about uh, having a, a tree at the palace. Um, so we've got this sort of standard sort of model of the Christmas tree that traditionally was decorated with candles and as with all Christmassy things this goes back to pagan yuletide rituals that celebrate the return of the light of the sun as the days grow longer so it's all about you know the awakening of the world the return of Jesus as as the light all of those kinds of things now what we see is that in the beginning of the 20th century the small candles and lanterns that people have traditionally used start being replaced very slowly by electric Christmas tree lights. And this is from about the beginning of the 1880s. And one of the first uh, Christmas tree lights that is electrically illuminated was the creation of a man called Edward H. Johnson, who was an associate of the inventor Thomas Edison. And he was president of the Edison Electric Light Company, and he had a Christmas tree built very specially for him. And what was remarkable about this was that it was actually hand-wired with 80 red, white and blue electric light bulbs around the size of a walnut. And he had it put up in his home in New York on Fifth Avenue on the 22nd of December 1882. Now, of course, what we see is that this is very socially restricted. This is basically one individual who goes to town and has it has it done. Of course, it's probably a big PR stunt, but it's not that much later that we see Christmas tree lamps actually being advertised in journals. And one of the first was a nine socket set of string lights produced by the Edison General Electric Company of Harrison, New Jersey. And it's advertised in the Ladies' Home Journal. And through the wonders of the internet, I found this. No danger from the lights on Christmas trees. When Edison miniature lamps are used, no smoke, smell or grease. Lamps can be either bought or rented at a low cost. Anyone can readily wire and put up the lamps if there is an electric current in the house. Our leaflet on Christmas lighting tells all about it. Edison Decorative and Miniature Lamp Department, General Electric Company, Harrison, New Jersey. Now, of course, from here we see the spread of illuminated Christmas tree lights, the ability to switch on and off the lights in your own home. From there, the tradition of lighting up streets and buildings and, in fact, lighting up whole houses of individuals spread. And by certainly by the 1960s, this is well established. Now, this leads us to what I am actually wanted to talk about, which is the switching on of Christmas tree lights in high streets. And I want to talk in particular about the main shopping street in central London, which is Oxford Street, which have had 
Christmas tree lights since 1959. They weren't the first place in London to have this. They were copying nearby Regent Street, which featured Christmas tree lights since 1954. But from um, 1959 onwards, we see the local shopkeepers, the local council getting together, clubbing together to finance these spectacular light displays which basically would make it a really attractive place for shoppers to come and ideally they would they would shop more and spend more and they fall out of fashion for a little bit then in in 2010 they're they're back they're taken over by a a marquee hire company who did the same thing in regent street called field and lawn and it is estimated that some three quarters of a million light bulbs are used annually so used every year 750,000 and what is traditional now is that a celebrity turns on the lights in mid to late November and leaves them on until 12th night uh, on the 6th of January and this has been going on for decades it wasn't they were the lights were postponed in 1963 because of the assassination of JFK but listen to this list of following celebrities who turned on the lights since uh 1981 uh Miss World Venezuela in 1981 uh the wonderful Daley Thompson uh in 1982 Pat Phoenix Esther Ransom, Bob Geldof, <laughs> 1986 was Leslie Grantham, Dirty Den from EastEnders, and his on-screen wife, Anita Dobson. 87, Derek Jameson, Terry Wogan, uh, Aloha Low, famous Gordon Kay, Cliff Richard in 1990, the Westminster Children's Hospital in 91, Linford Christie, Richard Branson, Lenny Henry, the Coronation Street cast. In 1996, it was the Spice Girls, then it was Peter Andre, Roman Zoe, Zoe Ball, Ronan Keating, um, Charlotte Church, would you believe, in the year 2000. S Club 7, Blue, Enrique Iglesias, Hermione Granger herself, Emma Watson, <laughs> with Il Devo and Steve Did Redgrave. Did she do it with a wand? In 2004, so. I imagine. Expelleramus, uh, Westlife, <laughs> All Saints, Leona Lewis, Sugar Babes. Amazingly, Jim Carrey in 2009. Oh. Um the Saturdays, Robbie Williams, Jesse J, Cheryl Cole, Kylie Minogue in 2015, when their lights were switched on slightly earlier than usual, and they were switched on on the 1st of November, which resulted to uh, appalling chaos as streets were closed down. So there we are. It's about. It's all about the the intimacy of Christmas lights in your own home, celebrating the season and the power of celebrity, Sam. Yeah, it is. It's like a kind of cultural thermometer of the last uh, 20 years there. You get a sense of what what, what was important, what was famous um, and, and how and why people were chosen. What I'd like to know is, is um, how much notice were they given? So um, say Kylie was doing the lights. She, uh, that might have been because she was doing something important six months before when they had to make a decision of who to book. And I wonder if it's like it's got a sort of slight delayed reaction to what was a kind of what was what was uh, important and famous at the time. Does that make sense? She was probably feeling lucky, lucky, lucky to be (laughs) switching them on. No, I know. know. Yes. Uh, And people who refused 
Uh, and uh, some of these are sort of very much not A-list celebrities, are they? No, no, that's a really good point. It's um, it's like a it's it's like a specific historical source challenge, isn't it? You've got to see the gaps. You've got to you've got you can't just assume that everyone was chosen uh, as first choice or that they were uh, kind of relevant at the time. I think it would be a bit of a mixture. Or if you move um, into the provinces, you know, what are the who are the celebrities <laughs> that are switching things on? in the local towns. Probably yeah. people who were there doing pantomime, I'd yeah, imagine. That's true. That's true. Mm. Or local radio disc jockeys. Yeah, you get that a lot around here. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember yeah. that many famous people switching them on in Exeter. However, no. it's a good night out with the Christmas it's... market, somewhere to yeah. take the kids. Mm. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Um, I'm going to go away from uh, lovely lights to some more, more horrid electricity again, because having explored the history of, of not people giving people electric shocks, I thought I'd have a quick look at the history of actually giving people electric shocks. And the, the, the early history of the electric chair is really quite alarming. Um, and a fascinating uh, kind of in its own right. It makes you think about what people, what, what, what was going on? Why on earth that they were doing what they were doing and how they did it? And uh, some things make sense at the end of it. Um, part of the, the idea behind creating an electric chair was all to do with a number of accidents which had happened because of arc lighting. Um, which had been kind of introduced in the streets of New York in particular. And this is in the late 1880s. A number of accidental deaths by electrocution. Um, there's one in the summer of 1880. And you've got a drunken dock worker called George Smith. And he enjoyed a, the tingling sensation he'd noticed. Uh, a bit like you with the... Um, <laughs> maybe a bit more tingling sensation. Uh, when he grabbed the guardrail in a Brush Electric Company arc lighting powerhouse... Anyway, he enjoyed it so much, he managed to sneak his way back at night and he gra grabbed uh, basically part of the large electric dynamo um, and died instantly. 
And the coroner brought it up and thought it was a curious phenomenon. And there were a number of other uh, deaths by electricity. Along comes a chap called Alfred Southwick, who's a dentist. This is interesting. If you've always wondered why the electric chair looks a bit weird, it's a bit like a dentist's chair. And that's because it was invented by Alfred Southwick, who had spent a lot of his life being a dentist and then decided he was going to, to become a specialist at killing people. Um, he invented the electric chair. He conducted hundreds of experiments on dogs. Um, dogs in water, dogs out of water. He varied the type of electrode. He varied the placement. Um, he managed to do it in a repeatable way. Um, believed he'd come up with a way of, of safely uh, and uh, uh, more humanely killing humans. So they, they believed that this was a more humane way than hanging. Um, he then electrocutes a horse and um, it, it gets approved for, for use. And uh, along comes William Kemmler, who was a 30-year-old. He was an alcoholic. He was a murderer. Um, and he was electrocuted. And uh, this whole alarming experience was um, described in the time in the New York Times. Standing on the threshold, he turned and said quietly, is all ready? Nobody spoke. Kemmler merely lifted his eyes and for a moment turned them enough to catch a glimpse of the bright, warm sunlight that was streaming through the window of the death chamber. Goodbye, William, said Durston. That's Charles Durston, who's the warden. And a click is heard. The goodbye is the signal to the men at the lever. The great experiment of electrical execution had been launched. New York State had thrown off forever the barbarities, the inhumanities of hanging its criminals. But had it? Words will not keep pace with what followed. Simultaneously with the click of the switch, the body of the man in the chair straightened. Every muscle of it seemed to be drawn to its highest tension. It seemed as though it might have been thrown across the chamber were it not for the straps which held it. There was no movement of the eyes. The body was as rigid as though cast in bronze, save for the index finger of the right hand, which closed up so tightly that the nail penetrated the flesh of the first joint and the blood trickled out on the arm of the chair. Doctors Spitzker and MacDonald stood in front of the chair, closely watching the dead or dying man. After the first convulsion, there was not the slightest movement of Kemmler's body. An ashen pallor had overspread his features, what physicians know as the death spots appeared on his skin. Five seconds passed, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 16, 17. It was just 6.43 o'clock. Dr Spitzker shook his head and said, he is dead. Warden Durston pressed the signal button and at once the dynamo was stopped. The assembled witnesses who had sat as still as mutes up to this point gave breath to a sigh. The great strain was over. Then, the eyes that had been momentarily turned from Kemmler's body returned to it and gazed with horror on what they saw. The men rose from their chairs impulsively and groaned at the agony they felt. Great God, he's alive, someone said. Turn on the current, said another. See, he breathed, said a third. For God's sake, kill him and have it over, said a representative of one of the press associations. And then, unable to bear the strain, he fell on the floor in a dead faint. District Attorney Quimby groaned audibly and rushed from the room. 
Doctors Spitzker and MacDonald stepped towards the chair. William Durston, who had started to loosen the electrode on the head, raised it slightly, then hastily screwed it back into place. Kemmler's body had become limp and settled down in the chair. His chest was rising and falling, and there was a heavy breathing that was perceptible to all. Kemmler, of course, was entirely unconscious. Doctors Spitzker and MacDonald kept their wits about them. Hastily, they examined the man, not touching him, however. Turning to Warden Durston, who had just finished getting the head electrode back in place, Spitzker said, have the current turned on again. Quick, no delay. Durston sprang to the door, and in an instant he sounded the two bells, which informed the man at the lever that the current must be turned on. Again came that click as before, and again the body of the unconscious wretch in the chair became as rigid as one of bronze. It was awful, and the witnesses were so horrified by the ghastly sight they could not take their eyes off it. The dynamo did not seem to run smoothly. The current could be heard sharply snapping. Blood began to appear on the face of the wretch in the chair. It stood on the face like sweat. Now, this uh, ghastly description goes on and on. And needless to say, um, Kemmler is executed, but it certainly doesn't go very well indeed. And I think one of the most alarming things about it uh, after this execution is that um, Southwick, this dentist who'd invented the chair, after it had all happened, after this calamity and chaos, um, he, he, he stands up and says, there is the culmination of 10 years' work and study. We live in a higher civilization from this day. I shall leave you all to judge on whether that is true or not. Oh, very good, Sam. Very good. As always. Now, to end with, I'd just like to a short example um, relating to modern American history. And this is thinking about a very special kind of switch, the nuclear button, which isn't really a switch at all. It's in fact a a briefcase or a nuclear football, a sort of metal briefcase covered in leather. It's a process. It's a, a series of codes and phone numbers. And what's fascinating about it, researching this, is that it's connected to the modern history of the United States from the end of the Second World War to the present day, connecting to many of the most famous historical events in recent memory. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, in particular the bombing of those cities. It's also linked to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's linked to many of the nation's most famous and infamous presidents. You know, think about somebody like Nixon and more recently Trump. And the whole debate around this, this particular kind of switch is around the suitability of particular presidents to be able to control the nuclear button and this being brought into question. But just to start with, just in terms of terminology, as I said, the nuclear button isn't literally a, a button. Although it's depicted like that in popular culture, you know, with somebody pressing a button by mistake, it is in fact something that's much more complex than that. Pushing the nuclear button is in a sense a, a sort of figurative term that actually allows somebody to launch a nuclear missile. But as I said, the, the actual process is far more complicated than this. And as I said, it is, it's a series of codes and telephone numbers to call. It's a process whereby if somebody is incapacitated, then it goes to another person. And very famously, when JFK was assassinated, the person who was holding 
the nuclear briefcase or the whatever the nuclear button or whatever we want to call it, the nuclear football, they actually accompanied him to hospital after he'd been shot, so that it was there um, at all of those at all of those times. I think if we're thinking about the derivation of it, the history of it, and where it all comes from, it goes back to the end of World War Two, and in particular to the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And what you have there, you've got President Harry S. Truman, uh, who basically is the only president in history to actually presidentially approve a nuclear attack. But the way that he does it is quite dissociated from the physical act of pressing the button. In other words, he gives his permission and then military officials go off and do their own thing on their own. Truman was supposedly on a ship on the 6th of August 1945 when the first bomb dropped on, on Hiroshima. He didn't actually hear about anything until many hours later when he was supposed to be relaxing on board the deck while a band was playing to him. Experts think that he then didn't realise the speed with which the US military could get together uh, another bomb to drop on Nagasaki. So it actually is thought that he didn't actually know that this was... He wasn't really given a heads up about the second attack. So what you have there is a phenomenally powerful military weapon in the hands of the military, detached from the political decision-making. And it's not until the the military tell him that they've actually got, they could have another bomb ready within a week, that he actually realises the severity of what's going to happen. You know, and what he does is he intervenes, he takes the decision-making process out from the hands of the military and he orders that no more bombs could be fired without strict presidential approval. Now, he's replaced by Dwight D. Eisenhower as the next president who starts moving things in the other direction. And it's not until President Kennedy that we actually get things put much more in control of the president's hands. And this starts before the Cuban Missile Crisis, but also it's something that he becomes much more concerned with afterwards, um, partly because the Cuban Missile Crisis was such a close-run thing, and the fear was that basically what you don't want is a nuclear war by accident. You know, in other words, if those young airmen who'd been flying above had thought that they had seen a nuclear missile and then pressed a button, you could have had you know, World War Three, um, and that would have been absolutely terrifying. Uh, if you're interested in the Cuban Missile Crisis, you should listen out to our homeschooling episode, Playing Chicken, Homeschooling the Cuban Missile Crisis, that you can find uh, on our website or through Acast or on iTunes, or you could simply put it into whatever search engine you have. So after this, one of the things that they that they do is develop protocol that mean that the president has much greater control over things. And by the end of Kennedy's administration, what this meant was that the president was being followed around by a special uh, officer who was carrying the nuclear football. In other words, he was carrying this sort of suitcase with 
the phone numbers and also a series of attack plans so that he could very quickly decide, you know, what could be done. Because had a nuclear bomb been launched, the US would have had simply minutes to be able to respond backwards uh, to it. Now, this has real implications when you have a president in post or in office who is slightly dubious as a president. So you don't actually trust him to be able to make the, the right decisions. You can think here of somebody like Nixon. You know, Nixon, who was erratic, who was a heavy drinker. Um, and, you know, there there is there is evidence that there was discussion about whether he was deemed capable to be able to handle the nuclear football. This has actually reared its ugly head more recently and spectacularly with Donald Trump. Um, and I don't know whether you followed the the Trump presidency as keenly as I did, uh, with my eyes sort of half shut. Um, but in February 2017, you may remember that at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's resort, um, one of his guests picked, posted a picture of himself on Facebook standing next to the officer who was carrying the nuclear briefcase. Uh, this is just an extraordinary thing to to do and what we see um is that there is um that there is a real debate at the time about whether trump should be allowed to use the nuclear football and as i was squirreling around the internet as i did i came across uh, a discussion um on the about around the authority to order the use of nuclear weapons, which was a hearing before the Committee on Foreign Relations in the United States Senate on the 14th of November 2017. And basically, this was the first time in almost in 41 years since 1976 that the Foreign Relations Committee of the Senate or House has met to actually discuss the protocols of the president pressing the nuclear button. And it writes here, making the decision to go to war of any sort is a heavy responsibility for our nation's elected leaders. And the decision to use nuclear weapons is the most consequential of all. The Atomic Energy Act of 1946 and the subsequent practices recognise that the use of nuclear weapons must be subject to political control. This is why no general or admiral or defence secretary has the authority to order the use of nuclear weapons. Only the president, the elected political leader of the United States, has this authority. The nuclear arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War dramatically elevated the risk of nuclear conflict. As Soviets developed massive numbers of nuclear weapons and the systems to deliver them to the United States, we planned for the unthinkable. How to get our missiles in the air within those few minutes before their warheads could hit us and possibly destroy our ability to respond. In that kind of scenario, there is no time for debate. Having such forces at the ready has been successful in deterring such an attack. 
and for that we are grateful. But this process means the President has the sole authority to give that order, whether we're responding to a nuclear attack or not. Once that order is given and verified, there is no way to revoke it. To be clear, I would not support changes that would reduce our deterrence of adversaries or reassurance of our allies, but I would like to explore, as our predecessors in the House did 41 years ago, the realities of this system. So the very sort of basis of presidential control over the nuclear button gets debated in Trump during Trump's presidency. And I think this brings us back to where we started, Sam, in our brainstorm about the history of switches. When you have such awesome power to be able to press a switch, to switch something on or off, to cause a particular action, to send into space devastating weapons of nuclear power, you know, there is real authority. And it's the way that the switch really connects to some of the main themes and events of history of the 20th century. Very good. Who knew, James, switches were so interesting and important? It's kind of crazy. Very enjoyable, very enjoyable indeed. The, the real essence of histories of the unexpected. Guys, I hope you enjoyed listening to that. I, I hugely enjoyed it. Um, uh, please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. Uh, and if you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please check out uh, the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at James Daybell. I also, too, have been moonlighting and recording podcasts with a wonderful colleague at the University of Plymouth, uh, Robert Taub, who is a world-renowned pianist and an expert on Beethoven. And we've put together a series of five little episodes on different aspects of Beethoven's music for the Beethoven 250 Festival. Check that out at the Arts Institute Plymouth. Uh, if you want to follow the podcast, we are on at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, and we have an all singing, all dancing website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We also have a Patreon page, and anything that you can do to help us change the way in which people study and think about the past would be most welcome. That's it for now, guys. We'll be back soon with some fantastic new stuff. Cheerio. Take care. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.